Welcome, adventurers. The questions and pursuits of Mela and her friends have led to many dangers, drawn the attention of those who would see them dead. Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon (laughs) Mela had been right. There had also been a trap laid for Sarkeesian, Rianach, and Colfin, and it had been the worst of the two. If they hadn't dealt with their attackers and found their way across the six rooms that separated them, Sarkeesian may have been lost. Where Mela, Ketri, and Colborn had felled thirteen, twenty-five had been waiting for their companions, including two fairly talented casters. It was in some sort of long hall or gallery that they were able to turn their fate back from the brink of tragedy. Ketri's lack of subtlety, her reluctance to plan, had most likely saved Sarkeesian's life. With noises of battle ahead, the wild brawler barely paused, reaching out a long leg mid-stride. Her heavy boot struck at waist height, and the door burst open with a thunderous crack. The force of it caused the door to swing in, rebound off the sturdy wall within, and bounce back against Ketri, striking her with nearly as much force as she had struck it. It was here the door lost. The rebounding blow hit Ketri, who was still moving at an incredible pace, and it shattered, breaking into disparate parts, tearing from its hinges. It was only luck that four paces beyond stood the first of the two casters, who was in the middle of reciting the ritual words for some spell. Mela lost sight of their foe as their face peeled into shock, then determination, and finally fear. Ketri's much larger form engulfing the other in swinging limbs and bloody mist. Mela extended her sword as she passed through the ravaged threshold, blue and white arcane energy arcing through her arm and out the tip of her sword to strike the second caster who stood behind a pillar across the room. Colborn followed Mela and she heard his feet pause and then break to her left, the now familiar words of his favored sleep spell starting to spill from his mouth. Ketri was moving on from the enemy she had just felled as Mela made the first pillar and paused to take cover, looking deeper into the long room. The floor was covered in bodies, concentrated in a space close to a large double door on the opposite end. Her eyes strained to pick out her friends. She caught a glimpse of Colfin's forked beard amidst an active melee. A blur of dark clothing and fire-red hair was moving quickly through the shadows against one wall. Three taller figures in pursuit. Rianach. Panic set in as she was unable to identify the solid steel visage of Sarkeesian. And then outright fear as she saw one steel-encased leg sticking out from under a pile of several bodies. Unmoving. Ketri! Mela screamed, arm pointing toward the pile. 
the tall woman turned, veering down the long, intricately tiled floor. Mela's yell and the gore-covered half-orc with two axes drew the attention of those who had until now been confidently chasing down the last two intruders, sure of their victory. The feeling in the room changed, and several of the ambushers turned to meet the new threat. But with the five of them joined in a common task, the enemy stood no chance. Ketri was death's inspiration that day. Mela focused and lightning quick. Colborn freed up his brother from the assault, who was in turn able to make it to Sarkeesian's side, shoulders slamming into a body that lay atop their friend, knocking it aside as much as pushing it. His hand reached down, words of healing issued as quickly as could possibly be spoken. Sarkeesian sat bolt upright, sword still clasped in her hand. With their leader and guide revived, the remaining enemy were felled quickly. Between the magics of Sarkeesian, Colfin, and Rianok, the party's wounds were mended, their strength restored, but they had used much of their resources and abilities, and they had only faced the welcoming committee. Who knew what else waited in this place? The Grey House. Was Anganor really here? Or had they come to another false ending? Information always just out of reach. Sarkeesian, who had been a lifeless lump but bars before, was now urging haste, issuing orders to keep them moving. As fast as possible now, I want all the rooms below searched, every stairway to the floors above identified, hidden passages as well. It is clear Enganar is aware of our presence. Let's do our best to avoid stepping into any more traps. Mela thought she was going to be sick. Colfin and Ketri had already left to scout out the cave that was to be tonight's meeting place. Sarkeesian had to slow her down and get her to start over again as the words tumbled out. She was trying to speak, to relay the story of the figure and the fair and the thoughts that she had sensed in their mind. When the story was told, Sarkeesian only considered it a moment. They gathered what possessions they had and the few things that the other two had left behind. Mela went to the desk to return the keys, scowling at the clerk's toothy smile who in turn said he hoped they had enjoyed their stay and would consider the grift for future visits. And then after a pause, should that be necessary, this proclamation sent ice into her veins. She met Colborn, Sarkeesian, and Rianok around the side of the building. There was no way to tell which of the many dirt roads Colfin and Ketri may have taken out of the market and Sarkeesian didn't like that at all. Under threat of attack, there was no way to tell if their companions may have been fallen upon in the market or in the forest outside of its bounds. Having to make a choice, Sarkeesian took a path at random that led to the north. The hair on Mela's arms and neck were standing up as they set out. It felt as danger lurked in every dirty tent 
that every hooded figure or dull-eyed glance was looking upon them, threatening harm. Just over halfway from the inn to the north edge of town, the first attack came. It was nearly silent. If Mela hadn't been bringing up the rear at a distance, she may have never seen the dagger that was flung, taking Rianok in the back. The halfling stumbled and turned it into an awkward roll, going prone next to the base of a tent. Mela froze. The cloaked attacker came to finish the job. They had not realized she was there. Her fingers went to work. Sing-songy rhyme whispered beneath her breath. The figure produced a second dagger and was stepping toward Rianok, who was struggling to stand when they stopped, and then cocked their head, as if to listen to a whisper. Then Mela heard it, the beginnings of a giggle. It had worked. She picked up her pace, passing the assailant and running directly to Rianok to help her stand. The giggles had turned into a full-blown belly laugh. Come on. Quickly, Mela urged. They won't think it's so funny in a minute. Rianok gave a forced smile. Mela could tell her friend was badly hurt, but they had to keep moving. The assailant was reaching out a hand toward them, but the effort was weak, impeded by their raucous, uncontrollable laughter. The figure collapsed to its knees, hands clasping its side, gasping for breath between gales of laughter. What followed was a daylit nightmare. The attack on Rianok was not the last. Two muscled assailants crashed into Sarkeesian, knocking her from her feet three turns past where Rianok had been struck. Mela dashed in, leaving Rianok slumped on the ground. A quick and fierce exchange ensued. Before they were able to move on, Sarkeesian and herself were bleeding as well. On the way in to the Mummer's Fair, Mela had thought how small and dingy the place had been. With promised death lying around every turn, behind some moldered bit of canvas, it felt this maze of tents would never end. The most disturbing of all was the fact that there were still people in the streets. People watching them flee, who did nothing. No shouts of alarm, no calls to aid, just an eerie quiet. Some gazed upon them with looks of sinister interest. Others seemed in a hurry to move away, as if they wished they hadn't seen what was going on at all. It was impossible to tell who might strike at any moment, who might watch and who might flee. It was now clear, though, that none would help Sarkeesian dropped another lurking in the shadows ahead. Passing through a rare open space between tents, a barrage of bolts struck them. Mela ignored a burning pain in her own back as she felt Rianok buckle beside her. Silent tears were streaming from her eyes. Tears of fear, of panic and frustration. She would not stop. Colborn and Sarkeesian had turned to face the direction of the shots. Mela dropped to her knees, struggling to lift Rianok's limp form. Out of the corner of her eye, she saw Colborn's form change. He fell forward onto hands and knees, and then grew, flesh and bone, stretching, expanding, 
shaggy brown fur sprouting out to cover the massive shape he had become. A second volley of bolts fired, all of them at what had been but a moment ago, a dwarf who was now a bear. But this was no normal bear. Nearly four paces long and over two paces high at the shoulder, Colborn had become a dire bear. The bolts thumped into his pelt, several bouncing off with no effect. Colborn, in his new form, reared up onto his hind legs and let out a roar so loud, so terrifying, that even knowing it was her ally, Mela's heartbeat skipped in her chest. Colborn crashed forward onto all fours again and then charged into the clutter of canvas. For the first time that day, she heard panic in the voices of some other than her companions. A cacophony of tearing material, shattering tent poles, and screams of dismay followed in Colborn's wake. Sarkeesian was at her side, taking Rianok from her in one smooth motion and propping the little woman over her shoulder. Come on, Sarkeesian said, while we still have a distraction. They made it to the northern edge of the tents without any further assaults, at least on them. Two hundred paces west of them, where the tents ended and the trees began, was a commotion. As soon as she registered it, Sarkeesian turned toward it, continuing to move at a rapid pace. As they ran, Mela's eyes were drawn to the waterfall of red hair that hung over Sarkeesian's shoulder. Rianok flopped lifelessly. She may as well have been a sack of grain. Mela had to hold back the urge to be sick. Twenty paces from the event ahead, Mela saw them. Colfin still fought three, but Ketri was down on the ground. Her nausea redoubled, but then she shoved it into a cold anger. She would not let their journey end here. One blade was drawn from her belt, and the other appeared in her hand. A guttural growl escaped her as she broke into a run. She moved with a fluid grace, water wielding blades. Sarkeesian joined a half-beat later, and in no time, for the first moments since this nightmare began, they stood alone, unassailed. There is no time. We have to keep moving, Sarkeesian spouted. Can you still walk? She asked Colfin. He grunted and nodded. Can you carry this one? She said with a head jerk towards Rianok. He nodded again. Rianok's body went from Sarkeesian's shoulder to Colfin's. The echoing roar of Colborn sounded behind them. Still in the fair, but not far. Sarkeesian kneeled, pulling Ketri's significant form over her shoulders, exhaling as she stood. So calm and well-spoken was Sarkeesian, that when she showed her true physical strength, it still took Mela by surprise. Into the woods, friends. Colfin pushed his free hand into a pouch at his side, brought out what looked like some ashes, whispered a few words over them and then blew the ashes out behind them. He nodded to Sarkeesian, and they started off. Two bells they had walked, north and east, then doubled back south half a bell before heading due north, 
Half Berlin, they had paused long enough to revive Ketri and Rianok. They were both weak, but able to move on their own. When they had traveled for a total of five bells, Rianok could go no further. They stopped and made camp where they were. Mela was numb with exhaustion. The horror of having left Colborn behind nagging at the back of her mind. But before passing out, Rianok was able to cast a spell, sending a message to him describing the general route they had taken. And the gods be praised. He had responded. A little over a bell into the first watch of the night, an owl glided silently down from the sky to land in the clearing where they rested. Ketri, who was on watch, raised an axe to throw at it, but the owl shimmered into Colborn's form. They shouldn't have, but somehow they had all survived. Late the next morning they had moved camp, but only about a bell's travel. Last night they had camped where they fell. Today Colfin led them to a better suited place. A small spring trickled from a strange rock formation that they were able to shelter under. Given the beating they had taken the day before, Sarkeesian had no other plans for the day than rest. This was the second time their attempt to find information had led to attempts on their life. Mela could sense the unease amongst all. It was quiet. Quiet until the stranger appeared. Tall, very tall, and wrapped in a cloak of dark gray. The person made no attempt to hide. Colfin saw them first. Still packing pots away from lunch, he dropped a pan, grabbed his bow, and knocked an arrow. Mela spun to see the figure stopped, holding hands out from under the cloak, palms turned up in a sign of peace. Thirty or so paces away, every one of them now stood, some weapon or another in hand. No one spoke. No one moved for a time. Sarkeesian edged forward, hailing the unexpected visitor at last. What do you want, friend? The head under the cloak tilted and then replied, I have information on that which you seek. Mela looked to Sarkeesian. She felt the rest of the group stiffen. Sarkeesian replied, Well, let's have it. The figure didn't move any closer, but chuckled after a moment. Two thousand gold. It was a question. I don't see it anywhere. Ketri growled. Colvin flexed the bow further. You called the meeting? Sarkeesian followed up. I did. And the ambush? You have no reason to believe me. But I am not a killer. I acquire money in other ways. Their hands were still held firmly out in front. Sarkeesian considered a moment, and then indicated for them to stand down. They all dropped their weapons from the ready position, but none of them put them away. Colvin, Sarkeesian gave the request. The dwarf and her shared a long look before he went to his satchel, stuck his hand within, and pulled out two large pouches. 
Sarkeesian took them and began to close the space between their camp and the visitor. Colfin followed a few paces behind. The rest watched. When she was five paces shy of the figure, Sarkeesian stopped. She threw one of the pouches across to the figure. It was snatched from the air and disappeared under the cloak in an instant. Then the next one, the cloaked one said. The next one comes when we have some info. The figure shifted on his feet. Here is your information. There was a long pause. You are a bunch of unwitting fools that do not even begin to fathom that which you look for. The stupidity you show is astounding. There is no green scarab. The name of the being you seek is the Emerald Scarab. And my advice to you is to stop. Yesterday's pathetic attempt on your lives is a warning. It means you have not truly garnered the scarab's attention yet. You are like children pretending at being adventurers who have stumbled into a dragon's mouth presuming it to be a cave. My advice to you is to turn back, that you all go as far from the Barata province as your feet will take you. Never ask another question of another being about the scarab for the rest of your living days. There was a long silence before Sarkeesian responded. That is not much information for two thousand gold. First off, I am only holding a thousand gold. And secondly, I ask you to consider the value of six lives. Do you place such low worth on them, knowing they are your own? The visitor let that sink in, finally following up with, If you continue on this path, if you draw the emerald's eye, it will not just be you who dies, but everyone you have ever loved. The Emerald Scarab values nothing more than anonymity. If you heed my words, I have saved your lives. Nothing followed. The figure began to turn. Sarkeesian threw the second bag of gold across the gap. It landed on the ground. The figure squatted to retrieve it, keeping his head up, facing them. If the Emerald Scarab is as dangerous as you say... Why would you risk telling us? Sarkeesian asked. The figure stood and turned and began to walk away. Mela saw Sarkeesian's shoulders slump in disappointment. But then the cloaked head turned, revealing a hint of a dark-skinned face and brown eyes. The Emerald Scarab wronged my family long ago. Consider a warning to fools, a service rendered. The Emerald Scarab Is this the end of Mela's journey? Or does a mysterious and expensive warning go unheeded? Stay tuned next week for part four of the Undying Emerald.